0: I'm Professor Hamish Maxwell-Stewart, and um, I'm a historian with a a strong um, economic history bent, and I've been interested for a very long time in life course and intergenerational issues. Now, um, the the big problem with um, studying um, these kind of uh, really complex problems is that you need large data sets, so large Mm. intergenerational data sets, and they're very difficult to build. Um, and I was attracted to Australia because of the convict transportation story. And so the convicts sent to Australia between 1788 and 1868 were described in extraordinary detail. So, right down to the color of their eyes and the text really? on their bodies. Wow. And the ones that went to Tasmania um, had something called a conduct record opened up. I mean, these were originally um, opened up in New South Wales as well but they survive almost in their entirety for Tasmania. And these these records include a summary of every um, court encounter while the convict was under sentence and also many after they became free. And so one of the things that I've been engaged in is a, a record linkage exercise in order to try and reconstitute life course court encounters for something like 75,000 individuals. Wow. Um, so, you know, that's a, a big data set. Yeah. And um, so,
1: um, pardon my ignorance here, but so does does the information and data go back to uh, kind of the homeland and follow them through to their transportation to the penal colony? Or yes. does it begin with their record that sent them there and then subsequent um, infractions or issues?
0: So it's a, a, <laughs> interesting, it's both. Yeah. So on arrival, each convict was, um, was interrogated and so that the, they were interviewed and the answers to a series of questions written down. And one of them was, um, how many times have you been convicted before? Now, normally we would not put much weight on that data, yeah. but each convict was told that their, um, their record had um, been forwarded from, the, um, from yeah. the administration in Britain and Ireland. And indeed we have both. So we have the official version and the convicts version and we can match the two. <laughs>
1: yeah, and how often were they honest? <laughs>
0: um, they're more honest than the official version.
1: Yeah, wow.
0: so 20% of convicts which who had no official record of, uh, of conviction coughed up details, um, <laughs> which is really wow. interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so there, that data is a little problematic because we don't know the timing. So we yeah. know the age of the convict on arrival and how many offences that they've been prosecuted for up until that point. Yeah. Um, but we do know the nature of the, we have a brief description of the uh, of the charge. And in most cases, we know the penalty. So we will know how- well, long You
1: don't know when those initial infractions occurred and offences occurred at what age and things like that?
0: That's right. Love do you get any-
1: right. Do you get any contextual information, like, I don't know, how they grew up, uh, their family size, where they're from specifically, or anything like
0: that? Yeah, we have family size for most of them. Again, this is confessional. and yeah. It's really difficult to interpret because you don't know whether um, um, the the dead are, are are enumerated or not, as we suspect yeah. not. Um, but we also have their place of birth generally down to parish level, so it's very fine-going. yeah. Life, and yeah we have their recorded height. And so we've had a, a great deal of, um, of fun, uh, fun's the right word, it's been an interesting yeah. exercise. But we, okay. we've, uh, we've established a very strong relationship between um, offending record and height. So the more, the more um, recorded offenses we have for a male convict, the shorter they're likely to be.
1: Wow.
0: Um, interestingly, the same relationship doesn't hold for women. No. Um, that's been interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, because it's very easy to actually say that you know height is a, an indicator of a poor socioeconomic start in life. Yeah,
1: yeah, especially then with malnutrition and things like that.
0: Yeah, um, some of the some of the differences may be biological because women are more robust than men when it comes to um, growth patterns; that they deal with adversity better. Okay, um, but it 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 does seem to us that there may be some wicked feedback loops in this. So it's, it's possible that the short people do badly in courts.
1: Yeah, just by social perceptions.
0: That's right. So and, and, yeah. we, we know that um, when it comes to male height, um, society is heightest.
1: Yes, um, yeah. It's quite well-established in psychological literature. Yeah. Yes.
0: But it's also possible that there's some kind of wicked feedback loop. Um, in the um, those so juvenile convicts who are stunted, for example, so short compared yeah. to their 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 um their peer group, um, may have be pushed into more offending. Yeah. Uh, yes. In, in order to keep up with their peer groups, so something like that may be going on. Yeah. Um,
1: so so as a means of of kind of maintaining status through through other mechanisms.
0: That's right
1: status and uh, status frustration and strain and these types of things. Is there any sort of evidence that also it has to do with that um, development in terms of socioeconomic status and capacity for um, access to nutrition and things like that?
0: Yes, I mean, I think all of these things are, are bound together. Um, so, you know, I was primarily interested when I when I sort of broke into all of this in, in health outcomes. So which convicts lived the longest? Um, yeah, that's really um, yeah.
1: interesting, yeah. Do do, do you have information on substance use disorders, or obviously it would be called something different then, but addictive behaviours and things like that? um,
0: Yeah, obviously this is a population which has very, very high tobacco use and and, and pretty high alcohol use as well. Yeah. Um, And again, those are difficult to measure, but um, we are hoping that in the future, with a slightly later cohort where we have prison photographs, we may be able to do something with um, fetal alcohol syndrome
1: yeah so which it, is distinctive in the facial features yeah
0: that's that's right so if you've got yeah. a transcribed life course you know offending and you can identify a population which has the traits of fetal alcohol um, syndrome yeah uh, and then we can look at different patterns <laughs> within both groups um, certainly with after the convicts hit australia um, we had we we you know, we're able to look at those who are who have higher rates of alcohol-related prosecutions.
1: Yeah, going forward.
0: And, and control for that.
1: Yeah.
0: But the, the interesting thing is that the convicts that are short, shorter than average are more likely to go on to offend in Australia as well. Um, so <laughs> it turns out to be um, a fairly re- a fairly interesting predictor
1: for
0: yeah. uh, um, court encounters.
1: And yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, the, as soon as you mentioned height, I thought right away that the, the larger individuals would be engaged in more kind of physical violence and these types of things. But it sounds like it's the opposite in that those elements we talked about, whether it be nutritional aspects or stress and strain and, and kind of trying to achieve status through through different mechanisms or express oneself in a more aggressive manner because of the lack of social recognition due to one's height.
0: Yes, I mean, there obviously, that there, there are there are caveats here. So, so the, the one offense which goes the other way is forgery, which is yeah. clearly picking up um, um, socioeconomic status of the offender. Um, and the, the the other thing that we found that was extremely interesting was that during the First World War, the average height of offenders went up. And that again, um, this is a really interesting indication that courts take the height seriously or at least that they're influenced by it and so we Mm. wondered whether um that taller individuals more likely to be prosecuted because the court thought that they should have um should have signed up for service overseas
1: that's interesting yeah
0: and and you know and then after the war that flips off so you can just see this this rise in the height of of those prosecuted during the first world and then goes
1: away again
0: it goes away again so it's
1: almost like they had they had the bodily capacity and therefore the responsibility to sign up
0: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that's of...
1: really that's really interesting. Have you explored any? Of the I'm pretty um, naive with this the criminological literature on on height. I know the kind of um, Lombrosian uh, kind of skull size and hand size and these types of things are kind of left there. Um, but is there any more recent? I, I know in psychology, for instance, sexual selection um, and these types of things around height has been explored and and and. Uh, to this day continues with the word I'm looking for, um, evolutionary psychology and these types of things. But I haven't seen much in, in criminology around what we, I guess what you call biological positivism. So have you, have you kind of looked into this a little further to try to understand it? Um,
0: no, um, we have, but we, we, are, we have used this data to look at growth patterns. So one of the things that we're extremely interested in is whether um, juvenile convicts um, grow taller than they would have done if they hadn't been transported. And so if they're put into put onto new world conditions where they have you know, access to higher levels of protein, does that mean that they're able to engage in what's called catch up growth? Yeah, so that they're able to put the transportation would put them back on a or penal transportation, would put them back on a, a biological growth um, trajectory, which would mean that they would end up taller than if they hadn't been transported. Um, so we, we've looked at that. Um, the only kind of Lombrosian thing that we've done is to prove how wrong he was. <laughs> we've done this with prison photographs. And so yeah. um, Lombroso and um, um, and some of his British colleagues um, had the notion that you could spot prisoners by um, overlaying photographs of burglars one on top of the other, yeah. and actually come up with the the kind of the traits of a burglar. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, we uh, did a, an experiment with. Um, Doing precisely that with nineteenth-century prison photographs with colleagues at the University of Liverpool, and um, <laughs> we proved very quickly why i yeah. abandoned the experiment. Um, yeah. If you do that, you create Hollywood sex gods. Yeah, <laughs> you, 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 you exaggerate the symmetry <laughs> of the Perf- perfect
1: oh. features going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. And so, do you have the similar amount of photographs as you do data? Like, there's seventy-five thousand photographs kicking about as well.
0: I wish we did. Um, we got photographs, photographs become more and more prevalent in Australia from the, the 1870s onwards. Okay. Uh, and since we're looking at intergenerational data, um, um, your crime data is just so rich. So, mm. um, so although you're looking at a subsection of the population, we know so much about that subsection that we can use census returns and other records in order to, um, in order to to see exactly where the distortions lie, and yeah. from yeah from the 1870s onwards, we have lots and lots of photographs, wow. and it, yeah. it would be great to use those more.
1: Yeah, visual criminology is a, a, a vast and growing area. We've just launched a project on um, rural rural crime. Uh, it's a photo competition, but it, it ties into visual criminology, trying to get a visualizations of people's perceptions of crime in the rural through the photographic lens. So. I can have appreciation for the value of these of these types of photographs. But going back to life course offending, which is uh, quite prominent. Criminology has a very, very extensive history and, and to this date, is something that's explored. Does anything stand out to you with this data over the life course as well as intergenerational offending?
0: Yes. So um, although our, our, um, our life course offending rates look low, um, certainly low by contemporary contemporary standards, Mm-hmm. Uh, we do find evidence that um, convicts who confess to uh, a lot of offending are more likely to be prosecuted while under sentence and are more likely to be rearrested after they're released. So we have evidence for life course you know, offending, but we think and then we have to be very, very careful about this because there are a lot of different selection factors. And yeah. um, we think we, we, we that we do have evidence that um, many individuals are diverted um, from interactions with the courts by what happened with transportation. Uh, so I think the best way of looking at it is it was it was like um, uh, um, a commun- a giant community order scheme. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not an institutional based system, or at least for the majority of the people who went through it, it wasn't institutional based. Um, and so the great thing that transportation- So are you
1: saying that transportation looks like led to desistance
0: from crime for many? Yes, yes, we are, wow. um, largely because, I mean-
1: You mentioned uh, the nutritional aspect, which I find interesting that they, they came here and had access to greater nutrition. We know the relationship between crime and access to things like food and housing and things like that. So what other elements do you think can explain desistance uh, uh, in these groups?
0: Well, interestingly, there's a, there's a big rural issue here. So um, the bulk of, of, of convicts were um, loaned out um, at uh, minimal rates to the private, private. sector as laborers. And the, the vast majority of men and a significant proportion of women um, worked on rural properties. Mm. And what this gave them was... Can, well, it allowed them to build some, some, or invest in some skills that were that were useful for the development of the colony. Um, yeah. But it, it also, oops, excuse me, What's up, problem. Just that off. <laughs> um, uh, well, hopefully that that will just. Um, let me just put it on. If it rings again, I'll put it on silent.
1: Sorry
0: about that. That's okay. Maybe I'll just send Nicholas a message. Oh no, I've just got it. I've turned turn the phone off. Um, so it gave people connections to the labour market and to employers, which were undoubtedly important in transitioning hmm. people to yeah. a life of freedom.
1: Now, having would you having, say it provided them a, a sort of sense of identity and uh, a sense of purpose?
0: I think that's quite likely. I mean, one of the things that we found interesting is when we looked at the convicts who left Tasmania to go elsewhere in Australia, we expected it to be the most skilled, and in fact, it turned out to be um, the least skilled.
1: Um, what do you mean, what do you mean by that sorry
0: um, so convicts who had um, skills as blacksmiths and bakers, et cetera, were unlikely to to leave. and I, I, what a What that suggested to me was that that transportation was successful in linking the people that had skills into the labor market post.
1: Into the local labor market. Yeah, Yeah. so no need to leave.
0: No need to leave. Whereas um, laborers, um, unskilled laborers tended to leave in larger numbers, women tend to stay as well. And um, yeah, they're less likely to to migrate. Um, Now, having said all of that, there is a big caveat so, I mean, it's, you, you could have a kind of Panglossian view that, you know, we've gone up the wrong channel with, uh, with prison, all we need to do is to have a, you know, a massive kind of community order scheme and we yeah. will get, um, uh, we will reduce um, reconviction rates. Yeah. Transportation was, was, in, was enormously exploitative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it treated people according to how useful they were not according to the severity of the offense they had committed. Okay. So, In
1: what regards, can you give an example of that?
0: Yeah, so if you were a plowman um, or a clerk, you were less likely to be taken to to court by a master
1: Mm.
0: because your labor was valuable. Yeah. Um, So they were more likely to turn a blind eye. Yeah,
1: Um, because they they needed your labor. Yeah. yeah,
0: But if you're a, you know, a textile worker and there is no colonial textile industry in Australia, yeah. if you're a textile worker, um, you're more likely to be convicted. Um, and so, you know, I think it was good at integrating people into the economy, mm-hmm. but it did so in a, a very, very exploitative way. And yeah. the, the, the other issue, which I think is germane to our times, is that also um, the, the labor of prisoners undercut free, free wage rates. So free labour that's competing with convict labour yeah. um, couldn't command as high a wage as they would have been able to if there had been no convicts. And so yeah. interestingly, the, um, um, the early Australian unions were very active in anti-transportation campaigns.
1: Yeah, was trying that- to stop that free, free labour.
0: Yes. So yeah. I, I, mean, I if we... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that um, it would be... Um, much, much, well, it would certainly be um, cheaper to um, to divert people away from prisons and into mm. community work orders. but yeah. it, it would um, um, set up additional problems that you know, Australia encountered in, yeah. in the 19th century.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, thinking about how the past can inform the present and the future when it comes to punishment practice and things like that a lot of what you've talked about, I see in kind of modern day criminology, the role of purpose, the role of identity, uh, access to you know important goods and services, inclusion in a civic community. We're actually doing some research in small rural towns here in New South Wales, hopefully into the role of civic community and civic engagement and assistance from crime. And it's going back, you know, so I'll be obviously uh, not so voluntary, um, 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 almost forced uh, community inclusion uh, through labor,
0: um, but definitely interesting dynamics going on there. Yes, yeah, um, um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is one of the things that's very, very important for me as a historian. Um, um, I think if you don't connect what's happened in the past to the present, then history is in danger of becoming an esoteric add-on. Mm. Uh, so so we're, we're passionate about... Um, trying to develop very, very long runs of data. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, an, another issue which really interests us is the, um, as you know, the, the, the very high association between um, conviction rates in one generation and conviction rates in the previous generation.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And so uh, this is a, you know, assembling long run data is, a, is a, an opportunity to look at whether that's always been the case. Mm. And um, whether those issues have fluctuated over time,
1: and if there's certain characteristics based on time period or based on context that is shaping whether there is a kind of intergenerational pattern or not.
0: Yes. So we haven't picked it up. It's interesting when you start with a, you know, you start with sort of sixty percent of the population that's got a conviction record. Yeah. Which is the transportation era. Um, Yeah. We do not have any indications so far that the next generation is disproportionately composed of the children of transported convicts. So we expected to find that, and we didn't.
1: In terms of the offenders?
0: In terms of the offenders, yes.
1: Wow. Well, so would be first-time offenders?
0: Um, yes. Now, it is possible that if we go um, digging a little bit more deeply that we will find that there are... There are intergenerational patterns in certain types of offences. Yeah, um, yeah. I should That's say what like, I was
1: going to ask you actually, does really stand out with the typology of offences. You obviously said, you said, know, your fraud types of offences is usually um, more, I like guess, higher class individuals. Anything in terms of violence or anything like that. Um,
0: yes, so I think one of the things I should say is that the the, the range of offending that we've got data on is enormous. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know everything from murder. Um, right the way to down in the convict era, um, over 60% of all charges brought against convicts were for breach of workplace rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very small stuff. It's neglect of duty. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was talking uh, to a, a police officer yesterday about the penalties for stock theft, he's a stock officer. Yeah. And uh, he was talking
0: about convict error, penalties for stock theft, so don't steal a cow. <laughs> oh no, yeah, it's a really, really dangerous thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And, and so it's, we're, we're trying to work on a on typology for, um, for, well, at, at least classifying um, offenses uh, so that um, you know, we can look at stuff that was regarded as more serious. Yeah, um, yeah. And one of the problems, of course, that we hit is that there are things in the past which are um, which um, were deregulated No, that they, they did. Yeah,
1: no longer criminal, no yeah. longer
0: criminal. Yeah, um, and particularly, um, you know, homosexual crime, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and then, of course, there are other things which were criminal, and um, which which are criminal now, which weren't in the past. Yeah. Um. But um, developing um, a classification system which will um, cover um, offending through the ages is a, mm. a really, really interesting issue.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, it's it was long a gap. A historical criminologist was a rare find uh, um, many years ago, and it seems to be an absolutely budding and growing field. The application of of history and the importance of of that knowledge to modern day understandings of crime and punishment.
0: Um, yes. And also, the other thing is that um, the, a, a, a disproportionate number of historians who work with digital data turn out to be crime historians. Yeah. And that's because... Is it just
1: because there's yeah lots of data?
0: There's lots of data.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and the, the other group, which is interesting, um, uh, historical demography, um, because they've got access to birth records, which are... Really
1: yeah, digitized. yeah. S- census data and things like that.
0: But interestingly, military historians as well, because there's service records. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, and essentially, what we've tried to do is to um, pull all of those three groups together, um, yeah. and that's really interesting because you can you can look at profiles of um, of people who are having court encounters and compare them with people who enlist for military service. Um, yeah, so yeah. The, you know, that kind of looking at different sections of the population, I think, is very very useful.
1: Yeah, and so what do what do you hope? to get out of all this information and on looking at this history of, of convicts and, and this particular characteristics?
0: Um, a, a, a long run um, handle on, um, on the transmission of health inequalities is our number one aim. Um, we're particularly interested in um, gene environment interactions. So the, the idea that something like solitary confinement um, which you know, Tasmanian convicts spent seven hundred and fifty thousand days in solitary confinement. As wow. a result, yeah, it's a, it's a big number. And um, we
1: know in in modern day what that does uh, yeah. to an individual.
0: One day in solitary knocked um, in in our female cohort. Which we, you know, we we've traced a large number of our it's my turn. Cohort.
1: Apologies
0: we we've traced a large number of our female convicts to, to death and so mm. we've just completing a study at the moment looking at the impact of solitary confinement on on life expectancy and a day in a dark, dark knocks about 10 days off your life expectancy yeah um, but what we really want to know is does that impact upon the quality of life of the children who are conceived subsequently now it's um it's possible that um, we know we now know that um, chemical croating of the yeah. yeah. trauma yeah. can be transmitted.
1: Yeah, PTSD and, and all those yeah. kinds of things, yeah, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah.
0: So w- some of the markers that we will look to explore for that will be things like um, life expectancy, but um, others will be interactions with the courts. Um, Do you get mental health
1: records and things like that? Uh, obviously, that was probably tied a lot into criminal records.
0: We do. So we have the admission register for um, Tasmania had a a very small number of psychiatric institutions, and it had one which opened its doors in 1830 and didn't close them until 2002.
1: (laughs) Sounds about right. Wow. Yeah.
0: So we've got a complete set of admission records for that institution. uh, Yeah, we're, we're trying to link in. But of course, the issue here is that that there are lots of selection biases with this. So, you know, wealthy families look after individuals at home or find alternative um, forms of institutional care. Yeah,
1: fair enough. And then they wouldn't enter into any record system.
0: Whereas the police are rounding up vagrants, for example, pretty keen to get them out of the criminal justice system and into the mental health hospital if they can. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, but... uh, those biases aside, we do have the data.
1: Mm. Wow. And so, going back to what you're saying in terms of um, um, being able to identify these patterns over time, does anything else stick out to you?
0: We did find one real surprise, um, and it's to to do with it's to do with height, and um, it needs m- more exploration. But we um, when we looked to see if we could identify the the children of female convicts. Mm -hmm. Um, The the obvious place to look at was the Tasmanian born who were reconvicted later in the century. So we got a lot of data on them. Um, So when we linked these these, um, individuals to birth certificates and started tracing them backwards, we were looking to see how much shorter the Um, Tasmanian born prisoners arrested in the 19th century, who had convict parents were compared to those that had free migrant parents. Mm. And we got a, a very surprising result, we found that the the Tasmanian born who had a convict mother were taller, they weren't shorter, they were taller. So having a convict father made no difference, but having a convict mother made you shorter. And then when we started exploring this in more detail, we found that um, female convicts had very low fertility rates. Mm. And um, we've now got growing evidence that this is largely because of the way that they were treated under sentence. And so transportation cut your fertility. But we think that what's going on, uh, this is wild, is that that insult in one generation resulted in smaller family size, which meant that there were more resources to go around within the family. Mm-hmm. So therefore yeah. the next generation was taller and better off. And it, it may be that bizarre things like that can actually break intergenerational transmission patterns. So Love that rather than getting you know, poverty, begatting more poverty, um, yeah. the, extreme way in which female convicts were treated gave their children a weird kind of advantage in the next generation.
1: Because they were more smaller families and more access to resources. resources.
0: Yes. So you would imagine that if it's playing, that's playing out with height, it's also playing out with things like education.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So more work needs to be done on that. But um, It's
1: really interesting, though, that you can kind of piece all those. I could get all those pieces of puzzles and, and look at them that way And that yeah i guess family size would have been quite large that uh, on average and this mistreatment in the previous generation led to smaller family sizes and therefore greater access to a limited pool of resources whereas you'd have poorer families that are quite large you know seven or so going around with less access to nutrition education and these types of things
0: yes so in, in effect um the, what happens to convict families, or at least um, convict families where the, the the mother has been a convict, is that they're pushed through the um, that the middle class um, family transition before the yeah. middle class are. And so yeah. in terms of family size, they look like middle class families. You know, twenty years down the track. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 and not like yeah, uh, yeah. I guess lower class families that tended to have more more children.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, my dad
1: came. Uh, my dad's family came over on a ship from Ireland to a little little. um, island called Newfoundland or Newfoundland as we call it uh full of just Irish uh, one of the poorest uh, places in Canada I'm not sure what its GDP is these days or or average income but I still think one of the lower ends but but 13 brothers and sisters and that was the norm for an old Irish Catholic family and of course uh, very very limited access to resources and goods.
0: Yes well yeah it's just, just staggering when you think that um the average family size in Australia now is below two.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Western kind of industrialized agents.
0: And uh, yeah. And do you have a,
1: uh, what was it back then in the time oh, periods um, you're looking at?
0: Um, yeah, well, it depends how you measure it because the infant mortality is so high. Um, but certain, yeah,
1: so you got 13 and 10 yeah. of them don't make it past <laughs> 10 or yeah. something.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's right. But um, um, 10 births per, per woman is not unusual at all. Wow. Um, oh, the other thing that we, we did find is that, uh, which we're not surprised about at all, is that there's a very strong relationship between um, height in female convicts and fertility. So the taller mm. the woman, the more likely she is to have children. Yeah. Um, so that's um, interesting. It suggests that early childhood nutrition does affect later fertility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. These kind of health outcomes and how they're related to desistance from crime and or not.
0: Yes. So I guess the, the kind of take home message here is that um, the whereas we gathered this data originally to look at all kinds of um, um, outcomes, few of which were related to um, the history of crime or criminology, um, we've been sucked really quite yeah. rapidly into that history of crime space. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: because it's become really evident to us that we need to understand what's going on in terms of offending and prosecution within these populations in order to make sense of the data. Yeah. So that in itself has been an interesting journey. And um, you know, I also ought to add that there is no way that we could put together, um, well, in fact, the entire data set at the moment has 1.7 million um, um, observations in it. Um, wow. the, the only way you can put that together is to have a very large community of researchers yeah Um, and so we you know as we've gone along the the route the um the economic historians have been joined by more and more historians of crime and you know that's fun in itself it's it's i feel like that we've created a bit of a kind of um, research data co-op and um yeah that's a nice thing to be part of
1: yeah for sure it sounds like absolutely fascinating research and and again i think uh these outcomes are so important for our modern-day understandings of, of crime and criminality and punishment and responding to these issues.
0: Yes, and you know I should I should add that um, I mean um, anybody um, who wants to um, access our data can uh, can just uh, you know apply just um, email me. Um, yeah. we do, we do have a um, a very recent article describing all of the data sets that we currently got. And the other um, interesting thing is that um, yeah, when I joined the UNE community, Bridget um, Haywood gave me instructions yeah. to do for New South Wales, what we've done for Tasmania, which, of course, and is you a challenge on altogether different yeah. scale. Right.
1: Is it less, less, um, two things first. Uh, the first, where can uh, listeners find that paper that outlines the data sets and, and how could they get in contact with you if they are interested?
0: Um, it's just my, my um, UNE um, email, so you can either search me on the UNE um, website or just yep. um, remember H Maxwell, all one word, at yep. une.edu.au. Carl, um, I'll send you a copy of the, of the paper and um, presumably you can post it somewhere. Um, yeah, I
1: can post a link to it on the YouTube, a little harder on the podcast channels, but we can disseminate it via the center and things like that anyways. Now, the second question, how are you going to do that in New South Wales? Is there less information
0: available? Um, there's different types of information available, um, which is going to be a challenge. So we don't have those wonderful conduct records that summarize court encounters which are available for Tasmania. Um, but we do have more lower court records than we have for Tasmania. So we've got the whole transcript of the um, uh, of the you know each case. Um, really. Yes. That's amazing. Um, and whereas the, the scale is much, much bigger, um, yeah. we're not daunted by that. And um, there, there are 60 volunteers who work all the time transcribing Tasmanian data. Yeah. Uh,
1: um,
0: I'm pretty certain that we can actually assemble a, you know, a community of, of volunteers who are you know, part of the research team or help with the New South Wales data. And there's a lot that's already sitting there that's you know local and family history groups have got or you know yeah. researchers. And so um, we recently were, were given by um, by Deb Oxley, who um, is a well-known historian, um, um, all of her New South Wales um, um, convict indent transcripts to yeah. add to the Van Diemen's Land ones that we've we've got. And so that's you know forty thousand records just bang. Wow. So um, so it's almost
1: like you're, you're just swimming in, in data and information, which is a luxury problem. You just need the people to, the teams to parse through it.
0: Yes, and we need the infrastructure in order to store it and maintain it and clean it yeah. and code it.
1: And classify it and organize and class- it. And, yeah,
0: that, that, yeah. and the, the community that discusses the rules around that. But I think that um, there's a data gravity issue um, here. That um, when you put a lot of records together, they attract more records, they become magnetic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that we want to, we want to encourage that. Um, if we have an issue with data, it's um, data from beyond the first world war. So this is when we have expanding populations. Um, yeah. so the, Rapidly. the data get very, very big.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's less historical interest in them. Yeah. And so there's less digital data available. Um, and so I think that's going to be the big challenge is, is, is hoovering up all of those records. Uh, and getting to the point when you can can, and does that
1: not introduce a whole other set of dynamics in that the populations coming post-World War II are yes. almost entirely different? I mean, the, the ones coming from England and, and kind of the, the homeland is already quite diverse and different and, and in terms of life course and, and these types of things, but at least you can find some commonalities and, and and overlaps, whereas post-World War II, I would imagine, again, you'll have your primary streams, but it just opens up a whole other kind of camo, can of worms.
0: Sure, absolutely it does. Um, and it um, also it will raise um, ethics issues, particularly after the Second World War, because, you know, the offenders will still be alive. Um, yeah. Um, but the, the other thing that we can do is, of course, we get increasingly good census data. And whereas the census micro data doesn't, I mean, it's not kept in Australia, the, the, mm. the, the, the aggregate returns um, at least help you to see what you're missing yeah um yeah you know, and eventually you can you can uh, um you, you will be able to link to um, um live data sets around so in the health area we can work with the data linkage units there's one in every state And yeah. so we, we can give them historical data and they can link it to present day data and then mm. provide researchers with de-identified um you know research returns to work with
1: yeah it just sounds like the opportunity is absolutely unless i mean it's again a luxury problem having access to all this information and data I can think of, you know, a million criminologists off the top of my head, public health researchers, and the information that you could you could get out of this is just, it's just so not only fascinating but valuable, again, to understand the present.
0: Well, one of the things that we're having fun with at the moment is, um, is trying to um, integrate some of this data into our undergraduate teaching. Yeah. Uh, because students are fascinated by it too. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it's also a way of actually of, of teaching students. I mean, not just um, historical skills or um, or introducing them to the history of crime.
1: Yeah, uh, methodological. Yeah. yeah,
0: but that we're, we're teaching them how to deal with digital um, data. How yeah, which, it, how you can clean it, how you can link it, and, and yeah. procedures, et procedures, etc., etc.
1: Very powerful skills for a future researcher.
0: Well, I think that, that now that we live in a digital age and there's a div- digital revolution happening all around us, that I think it's yeah. really important that we embed that within our undergraduate teaching. Um, yeah. Uh, what
1: about opportunities for um, honours and postgraduate research and things like that? Um, we did our New South Wales Farm Crime Survey, for instance, which is probably one one millionth of the data that you guys have in your hands. And uh, when we had the ethical approval to uh, do this, we made sure that it could be open access for students because you know what we can't find, students perhaps could draw on and, and look at for. Um, we've got one unit, for instance, where they work with the police to solve a particular issue pertaining to far And so this data set they can utilize and draw on to help come up with particular solutions, many of them novel that that I have not thought of or or no rural criminologist has thought of. So are there opportunities here for students also to play a role in in looking at this data and utilizing it for projects and things like that?
0: Yes. And in fact, um, we're running a um, a little experiment at the moment where um, we have 20 undergraduate students. Um, who have volunteered to transcribe absconding, convict, absconding notices from the New South Wales Government Gazette. Um, yeah. And do a little project around, around those. Um, so, I, yes, I, I, there, are, there, are, there are lots and lots and lots of potential. Yeah. Um, and when you start to think about it, um, when universities start to do this, they're not only you know, teaching students skills, but you're also yeah. improving the undergraduate teaching sets that you, that you have. And the the possibilities for um for you know masters and um, PhD research are enormous.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. oh, exactly. Yeah, and that 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 research-teaching connection, which isn't always there, that embedding research practice into teaching and, and the value of that for students is is um is absolutely amazing.
0: Yes, so there are a lot of challenges. And one of the things we're we're grappling with at the moment is um what is the best way to actually hold all of this data. Um um, I, I think we, we're going to need to develop a, a better interface uh, moving forward, um, if we're going to you know, really um, unlock its potential within the classroom, for example. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, how does how do students engage with it in a in an open, uh, easy to understand way?
0: Yes. Yeah, um,
1: I've yeah. used some massive data sets in the past for research on on. Um, politics and voting patterns and and these types of things probably nothing in the size of what you're working with and even then a lot of those interfaces are so it it takes me months to kind of finally understand how to work with it and so having that that you raise is such an important element in terms of digital literacy and how to how to engage with this data
0: yes well undoubtedly the data sets you've been playing around with have been much bigger than, than 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 ours but um I mean, what makes ours interesting is it's complex because there's so many mm. links in it, and th- that's that's the tricky bit. It's you know telling people, for example, that um, there's one year of the permission to marry register which doesn't survive,
1: mm.
0: and so you if you didn't know that you would think that there was a sudden dive in 1832 in the number of convict women who were given permission to marry,
1: yeah, or,
0: or that um, that somebody um, didn't apply for permission. Whereas in fact, um, you know, if they implied in that year, we will not have a record on them. So it's all of those that in, even when we write that up, there are so many of those little problematic features of the data that it would be mm. difficult for somebody to get their head around all of them. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, a, yeah, that, that's, that's why you have to have detailed archival descriptions
1: yeah well sounds fascinating um, it wouldn't be a podcast rural crime unless I asked you to conclude about any kind of rural aspects or elements of this project that either stand out to you or you think would be of interest
0: uh, I'm particularly interested in um, uh, in um, urban and rural prosecution rates so the convicts that we have that were deployed in urban areas have um, are at a prosecution risk that's about twice that of the of their rural counterparts. Mm -hmm. And it would be really interesting to drill down more into this to see what's driving it. So we suspect that um, more police is a big factor. So there's, um, but we suspect also that it's possible that um, um, uh, um, greater distance to the courts so that a a private um, owner of a farm who employs convict labor is going to have to take it and make a considerable journey to yeah. bring a prosecution against an individual whereas somebody yeah. in the town just marches them around the corner uh,
1: yeah.
0: and it's also of course possible that you know access to you know um, 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 you know brothels and um uh, and pubs is greater yeah. in, in trouble, areas and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> access to trouble. yeah yeah
1: yeah wow that's really fascinating i mean there's a lot of growing Uh, literature in the rural criminology around access to justice, particularly the opposite these days, a bit of a lack of access to justice in rural areas by proxy of, for instance, opportunities for alternatives, sentencing. Um, opportunities to um, you know, have your day in court somewhat anonymously and these types of things, which are less, less, uh, you have less of an opportunity in a rural space these days by proxy of social density. Um, um, whereas back then, uh, information traveled a little bit more slowly um, and that's interesting, that dynamic of the distance one would have to travel to court to access justice on, on the behalf of the victim in this case, which is, would actually shave off uh, the amount of instances that that would uh, bring.
0: So yeah, we're, we're actually trying to um, measure that at the moment. So we're putting in um, um, latitudes and longitudes for every workplace and every call um, in order to see if we, if we can get a handle on that. Um, yes, one of the many yeah. things that keeps him busy.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Well, if you can think of anything uh, else rural oriented or interested, then um, reach out anytime to us at the center. I can think of, yeah, a few um, historical criminologists, particularly in the UK that that have entered uh, big time into um, um, rural criminology, probably around heritage crime, things like that, and damage to historical uh, buildings and and, and places in rural spaces, but um, lots of interest in rural criminology. I think the one thing about the history that you can't get away from is is reality, given the I think the role of rural previously. um, Predominantly in developing world still, but um, I mean, if you look at Australia, Canada, the the relative urbanization is is extreme these days. Yes,
0: Yes, absolutely. Whereas
1: many of these people would have classified by today's definition as as rural.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I and mean, I think all of Tasmania would have classified. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I think st- still most of Tasmania. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine it was a brave new world then.
0: Yeah, yes. Well, look, um, yeah, uh, I'm very, very keen to, to work with, um, with criminology at, um, at UNE. And I um, yeah, hope that uh, we have many, many more um, um, encounters and research engagements in the future.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you. It's good to have you at UNE. This research sounds fascinating and it's, it's really important stuff. It's really exciting stuff. So good to have you on board and thanks for taking the time out to chat with us about your research and your work.
0: Total pleasure.